0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Dualist Personality, Anton Wilhelm Amo. Who was the first white European scholar to admit that black Africans are capable of sophisticated philosophical reflection? Judging by our story so far, you might think of Placid Tempels, pioneer of 20th century ethnophilosophy. In fact, though, Tempels came along about two hundred years late to claim this particular distinction. Already in the year 1733, Johann Gottfried Krauss, the rector of the University of Wittenberg, Hailed the achievements of an African philosopher at his institution, and unlike Tempel's, he did not assume that it would take a white European to reveal and articulate the philosophical profundity of African thought. To the contrary, the rector pointed out that the continent had long been a source of eloquent wisdom. He mentioned ancient figures of Roman Africa, like Terence, Apuleius, Tertullian, and Augustine. While conceding that Africa has been less fertile in this respect in more recent times, He was pleased to report that his own university hosted living proof that Africans could still be accomplished scholars, and the scholar he had in mind was Anton Wilhelm Amo. Amo's story is remarkable, though not entirely unique. He was not the only African who was brought to Europe and who achieved a notable career in the early 18th century. Indeed, it may be that he was raised and educated in imitation of the similar treatment given to Abram Petrovich Gannibal at the Russian court of Peter the Great. Ganibal, named after the great North African general Hannibal, ultimately became a military officer himself after being adopted by the Tsar. The story is told in a biography written by Ganibal's great-grandson, none other than the famous Russian poet Alexander Pushkin. Probably Amo was, like Ganibal, taken as a slave from his homeland. This was Enzima land in modern day Ghana, meaning that Amo was born into a culture we have often had occasion to mention, that of the Akon and we'll come back to this point later. Once transported to Europe, Amo evidently received an excellent education while growing up in the household of the Duke of Wolfenbüttel. We know that Amo was baptized there in 1707, but not much else about his early life. It is really with his university career that he arrives in the pages of documented history. He first appears at the University of Halle in 1727, where he studies philosophy and law, then moves to the University of Wittenberg, where he presents his best-known work, an inaugural dissertation on the relation of mind and body, in the year 1734. In 1736, he is found back at Halle, and in 1739 at Jena, where he received citizenship in 1747. In a document applying for the right to teach at Jena, Amo emphasizes his poverty, giving us the sense of a struggling itinerant academic, rather than a creature of courtly success like his Russian counterpart, Gannibal. Amo's life story takes an unexpected turn when, for reasons that are unclear, one explanation points to a failed love affair, and many suspect an atmosphere of growing racial intolerance, he returns to his native land, the so-called Gold Coast, which as we said later became the country of Ghana. A contemporary report explains that he was about 50 years old at this time, and that he established himself in his hometown of Aksim, as a kind of diviner or prophet. This may seem surprising, given that, as we're about to see, Amo's written works show him to be a paradigmatic early 18th century thinker, engaging with the thought of philosophers like Descartes and Leibniz. But the report on his return to Africa asserts that, along with philosophy, and an impressive range of languages, both modern and classical, Amo had mastered the study of astrology and astronomy. This is supported by the fact that, in a teaching plan Amo presented for lectures to be delivered in Jena, the topics to be covered included divination and astrology. So, perhaps it is, after all, quite natural that Amo was easily able to step into the role of a diviner and sage upon returning to his native homeland. Whatever the case, the works left to us by Amo are contributions to a quite different set of questions. They are highly technical and rigorous philosophical treatises on human nature, epistemology, logic, and the mind, and follow the conventions of academic dissertations of the period, which lay out a series of claims and supporting arguments, with further defense being offered in a live disputation. It is a form of writing that recalls the procedures of medieval scholastic philosophy. Amo makes a big show of laying down definitions of his key terms and setting up a dialectical dispute with rival thinkers, and the idea that university masters should qualify by performing in a disputation, Is itself a medieval inheritance. But it's also clear that things have moved on from medieval philosophical discourse. Amo claims to be starting from clear and distinct ideas, a phrase we will readily associate with Descartes, and Descartes himself is one of the targets Amo selects for refutation. All three of Amo's extant works were written in the 1730s. Two were dissertations on the relationship between the mind and the body, presented at Wittenberg, and the third was a treatise on Philosophical Method, published in Halle in 1738. The first dissertation, On the Impassivity of the Human Mind, is his most famous work and one that we will discuss in some detail momentarily. The second, entitled The Philosophical Disputation Containing a Distinct Idea of Those Things That Pertain Either to the Mind or to Our Living and Organic Body, builds on the first dissertation, working out some of its implications. Scholars have often declined to attribute this second dissertation to Amo, as it was defended as a dissertation by one Johann Theodosius Mina. It has often been assumed that this is a student of Amo's, and the philosophical disputation was merely supervised, rather than written by Amo. This is, as it turns out, a misunderstanding of how defending dissertations in early modern European universities worked. The person defending a dissertation wasn't always the dissertation's author, the content as well as references in The Philosophical Disputation to On the Impassivity of the Human Mind, and to both previous works in Amo's third and final extant writing, all make it clear that he, not Mina, is the author of The Philosophical Disputation. The title of that third and final work, The Treatise on the Art of Philosophizing Soberly and Accurately, makes clear that it is Amo's summation not merely of his thoughts on the relationship between the mind and the body, but of all that is essential for philosophy. He introduces concepts and distinctions of various sorts, concerning the nature of things, differences and relations between aspects of thought, and rules for thinking clearly. His definition of philosophy in this work is one that many today might still find attractive and inspiring. Philosophy is the habit of the intellect and of the will, by which we continually undertake to determinately and adequately know things themselves, with certainty, to the extent possible, and by means of the application of this sort of cognition, the perfection of man, gains in possible increments. Let's now return to his first dissertation, which bears as its full title, On the Impassivity of the Human Mind, or the Absence of Sensation and of the Faculty of Sensing in the Human Mind, and their Presence in Our Organic and Living Body. Actually, that title already provides an adequate summary of Amo's philosophical position in the dissertation. He wants to argue that the mind is not, as some philosophers of the period wanted to claim, affected when we experience sensation. Suppose that you see a giraffe loping across the African savanna and think, what a majestic beast. A natural way to explain this is that your eyes have been affected by the pattern on the giraffe's skin, the lighting conditions, and so on, in order to have a visual experience. Your mind is in turn affected by that sensory encounter and moved to think that you are seeing a giraffe. But Amo rejects this apparently common sense account, and for good reason. He is a strict dualist who refuses to believe that mind can be affected by body. For him, the mental and the physical are two very different kinds of thing. Whereas the body can be passively affected, the mind is a spirit, which means that it is purely active and indeed perpetually engaged in understanding. Since sensation is, for Amo, defined as being really affected by the properties of material things in one's environment, there can be no sensation in the mind. Amo's worry is, to put it mildly, not a new one. Dualist theories of mind go back to antiquity, and throughout that history, dualism has faced the problem of explaining how the soul or mind can interact with the body. If we take seriously the idea that spirit and body are fundamentally different, then the fact that light affecting the eye can yield a judgment in the mind or that a choice made by the soul could result in the moving of one's arm, may seem downright inexplicable. It would be as if the number four were to drink a cup of coffee. Nor is Amo the first dualist who flatly denies that body can affect the mind. In a pleasing coincidence, he isn't even the first African philosopher to deny it. The late ancient Neoplatonist Plotinus, who hailed from Egypt, wrote a treatise which bears a similar, though mercifully briefer, title to that of Amo's dissertation, on the impassivity of incorporeal things. But Amo's own points of reference are more recent. He is especially opposed to contemporary thinkers who avoid the problem simply by rejecting strict dualism. Here he would be thinking especially of the vitalist teaching of Georg Ernst Stahl, who believed that the body could interact with the soul in a straightforwardly physical manner, an idea that fit well with medical theories that depicted the human as a psychosomatic unity. Stahl's ideas were dominant at Amo's initial academic environment, the University of Halle. It has been hypothesized that Amo moved from there to Wittenberg in order to find a more congenial intellectual setting where his dualist anthropology would find support. Wittenberg was a redoubt of dualist philosophy, and in particular of the ideas of Christian Wolff, who seems to be the chief inspiration for Amo's own position. One might assume that Amo would see Descartes, too, as an ally, given that Descartes is the most famous dualist in early modern philosophy, to the point that nowadays, philosophers use the term Cartesian as a near synonym for dualism. Yet, as we've mentioned, Amo instead singles him out for criticism. One might say that for Amo, even Descartes himself was not enough of a Cartesian. He takes exception to a passage in which Descartes admits that the mind acts and suffers together with the body. Amo thinks that it would have been more consistent for Descartes to adhere rigorously to a dualist position, according to which the mind's active understanding is in no way passive, and thus cannot suffer or undergo any bodily-caused effects. In other words, you are not caused to think you are seeing a giraffe or understand anything about giraffes by seeing a giraffe. Nothing at the bodily level can causally affect the mind. But of course Amo does not want to deny that the mind somehow registers the presence of a giraffe when one sees a giraffe, or has the idea of giraffes on the basis of encountering them. To the contrary, he adheres to an empiricist theory of knowledge according to which, as he says in the treatise, nothing is in the intellect that was not previously in the senses. This makes us humans different from God or the angels. Whereas those more exalted entities can understand without sensory input, our knowledge is always dependent on the mind's close connection to the body. Once time travel is invented, someone should go back to Amo's defense of his dissertation and push him on this very point. In his writings, at least, he is not very forthcoming about how ideas do appear in the mind, thanks to sense experiences. It seems clear that for him, what happens at the level of sensation is a brute physical or mechanical event, the mere reception of a sensible quality. Somehow the mind is then able to form what Amo calls intentions concerning the qualities that have been received by sensation this is a purely active process, comfortable to the mind's choosing to pursue a certain purpose in practical deliberation. Amo thus refers to both the sensible object and the object of a volition as an end that the mind consciously intends. So, whether you're identifying a giraffe as the majestic beast you are seeing as it lopes across the savanna, or identifying it as the target of some practical choice, perhaps you've decided to give her a birthday present, like an extremely long scarf, the giraffe is the end determined by an intentional, conscious act of the mind. While Amo’s view fits into the dualist tradition of Leibniz and Wolf, he is staking out an original position. In particular, he makes no use of the Leibnizian idea of pre-established harmony, whereby events at the level of mind and of body arise independently, yet correspond to one another without any causal influence across the divide. For Amo, the mind does indeed interact with the physical environment, but in a way that is entirely active. At this point, you may be wondering whether it really makes sense to think of Amo as part of the story of Africana philosophy. Sure, he was a black African, but his philosophical concerns, and indeed his philosophical contributions, seem to belong squarely within early modern European thought. Even Paulin Hontunji, who famously defined African philosophy as simply the set of texts written by Africans, and described as philosophical by these authors themselves, saw something ill-fitting in the classification of Amo as part of the history of African philosophy. It is certainly the case that Amo's works count as African philosophy by his definition, and it is certainly not the case that Untunji finds anything disappointing in the chosen themes of Amo's work. On the contrary, from his universalist, anti-ethno-philosophical point of view, Untunji sees reason to celebrate what he describes as Amo's direct and frank dialogue with the great philosophical works of his time, and his unaffected and questioning relationship with them. What is disappointing, then, is the fact that Amo, as a result of his historical circumstances, could only ever aim his philosophical writings at Europeans. These works were not offered up for the purpose of a conversation among his fellow Africans. This is the sense in which Ondonji views Amo's work as belonging entirely to a non-African theoretical tradition. There are a couple of ways to think differently about this question though. First, we should consider a tentative proposal made by Kwasi Wiredu. As we've seen, Amo came from the Akan people, and thanks to our earlier discussion in episode 19, we know a lot about the Akan view of personhood. We saw that in that tradition, there are two spiritual powers or principles that help to constitute the human being, the kra and sunsum, which are at least arguably immaterial and thus fundamentally distinct from the body. Might this have been an influence on Amo's dualist philosophy? Intriguing though this proposal is, it seems rather unlikely, given that as Wiridu himself concedes, Amo was a very young child when transported from his original home. If Amo was ever aware of a resonance between his own philosophy and Akan beliefs, then it could presumably only have been something he discovered upon his return to Africa later in life. A nice thought, but not relevant for interpreting the academic treatises he wrote while in Germany. However, there is a second and much more direct way to connect Amo with the concerns of African peoples. We have not yet mentioned that, in addition to the three rather scholastic treatises we have from his pen, he had earlier defended a very different thesis concerning the legal status of Africans, or Moors, living in Europe. Frustratingly, we do not have the written version of this work. In fact, it may be that there never was a written version, and that it was only a matter of defending a thesis in a verbal debate. We do, however, know the gist of his argument, thanks to an academic report from Halle where the disputation was held. Amo appears to have appealed to the fact that the Moors were subjects of the Roman Empire, via their rulers, who were vassals of emperors like Justinian. Here, the word Moor, if appropriate at all, should apply only to the people of northern Africa, who fell into the orbit of Roman power, but Amo was presumably broadening the notion to include all Africans. After all, Amo himself was called a Moor by his German contemporaries. On the basis of this historical evidence, Amo went on to investigate the extent of freedom that should be granted to Moors enslaved to Christians in Europe. As the Ghanaian philosopher William Abraham has interpreted, the kernel of Amo's argument was that Africans were entitled to the same immunities and privileges to precisely the extent that the erstwhile European vassals of Rome enjoyed them for the African kings had been likewise subject to Rome. Or, to quote another modern-day scholar, Justin Smith, we have here, an argument made by a slave against the legitimacy of the institution of slavery, founded in jurisprudence and historical scholarship on Roman law. Remarkable though this is, we should stress both the limits of our knowledge of what Amo is arguing here, and the limits of that argument itself. The report is so sketchy that we are, in fact, making an assumption when holding that Amo must have concluded that slavery is illegitimate. Even if he did, it is worth noting that Amo did not appeal to a theory of natural rights to justify the freedom and equality of Africans. Instead, he appealed to conventional, legal rights deriving from the imperial reach of classical Rome, and presumably, the connection between classical Roman law and the rights available to the inhabitants of the empire's latter-day heir, the Holy Roman Empire. Famously described by the French philosopher Voltaire as neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, this was nevertheless an important political entity for Amo, as it was within this set of mainly German territories that Amo was raised and educated. Basing an attack on slavery on the imagined connection between ancient Rome and the modern Holy Roman Empire may have been a useful strategy for persuading Amo's immediate audience, but it is obviously a rather precarious basis for the rejection of slavery. Legal convention could be invoked in favor of slavery too, as we can see in a work by a contemporary of Amos who had a remarkably similar life story, involving enslavement in Africa as a child, followed by an education in Europe, and finally a return to the homeland. The story of this other man is a sobering one, which has at its center the upsetting spectacle of a defense of slavery written by an ex-slave. His name was Jacobus Elisa Johannes Capitain, after being taken as a slave and sold at a spot in what is now the Ivory Coast. As a child, he was given as a present to a merchant of the West India Company stationed at the Gold Coast by the name of Jacob van Gogh. The name Capitaine is apparently an allusion to the ship captain who gave him to van Gogh. In 1728, the young Capitaine was in Holland, meaning that he was automatically manumitted. Slavery was illegal in the Netherlands, even though the Dutch were keeping and selling slaves elsewhere in the world. Capitaine's mission in life was set early, and we do mean mission. Inspired by the theologian Hendrik Velse, a young Capitaine wrote an essay called Call of the Heathen in 1737, arguing for the need to do missionary work in non Christian lands like his native Africa. This essay is lost, but Capitaine provides us with a summary of its contents, along with a brief autobiography, at the beginning of a lecture on slavery and its compatibility with Christian doctrine which he delivered at the University of Leiden in 1742. One interesting feature of this lecture is that Capitaine dutifully explains the abolitionist argument he is refuting. His opponents quote such biblical texts as, The truth will set you free, to show that Christianity is a religion of liberation, not servitude. Capitaine agrees that Christianity is concerned with freedom, but insists that this means only spiritual freedom, that is, the soul's liberation from sin. It has nothing to do with freedom of the body. Which is not to say that slavery is a good thing. Capitaine ties its existence to the degradation of the human race, and concedes that Christianity encourages benevolent treatment of slaves and setting them free. This gives us, for the second time in this episode, a parallel between the argument of a modern African thinker and a more famous ancient African thinker, because in the City of God, Augustine similarly condones slavery while identifying its existence as an unfortunate consequence of sin. Capitaine denies that it is obligatory to set slaves free, as slavery is accepted in the law of the Old Testament, and in Roman history, there is no legal basis for abolition. So, here we see that Capitaine was fighting on the same territory chosen by Amo. He also treats slavery as a legal, not moral, issue, and one that calls for us to look back to the practices of antiquity. Capitaine's conclusion is that slavery is an institution established not by nature, but the law of nations. On this basis, he explicitly rejects Aristotle's alternative rationalization that some people are simply born slavish by nature. Despite this rejection of the idea of natural slavery, it may seem not just disappointing but inexplicable that an ex-slave, like Capitaine, should defend the practice of slavery on legal and religious grounds. But it is easier to understand if we consider his intellectual project as a whole. Following the lead of his mentor, Velse Capitaine is a theologian, whose main aim is to promote missionary work among the so-called heathens. Accepting that adherence to the Christian faith is incompatible with slavery would mean that missionary work should go hand-in-hand with abolition. Christians should, in that case, not be enslaving anyone, and certainly not those that they are trying to liberate by bringing them the news of the gospel. The problem, from Capitaine's perspective, is that such a position could undermine enthusiasm for missionary activity in Africa, so, he instead pursues what we must recognize as a lamentably modest goal, even if he himself saw it as the most exalted of aspirations, the freeing of souls rather than bodies. In his own case, the project was ultimately a failure. He was ordained after graduation from Leiden, thus becoming the first African ordained as a minister by a Protestant church. He then returned to Africa to undertake missionary work, but found this an upheld struggle. Conversions were few, And he was beset by financial and personal difficulties before dying at the tender age of 30 years. It's ironic that Capitaine, like Amo, albeit in a far less philosophically sophisticated manner, placed so much emphasis on the difference between body and soul. For Capitaine, this contrast could be used to justify slavery of the body, since it is only the soul that counts in Christian theology. For Amo, by contrast, the impassivity of the mind may have been bound up with the stance he took against slavery. It is clear from his writings that Amo considered human persons to be disembodied minds. He saw them as entirely independent from the influence of body, not only as the experienced sensation, but as they form the intentions leading to moral action. This radical dualism is a natural fit for an egalitarian view of human nature. To quote Justin Smith once again, for Amo, humanity is rooted in something metaphysical, namely an immaterial spirit, and a spirit cannot have a race. So, in opposing the psychosomatic theory of vitalism, Amo had a strong basis to deny that black Africans are slavish because of their supposedly inferior bodies. That would leave only legal and conventional arguments for slavery, and it is especially here that we assume he would have parted ways with Capitaine, since his own position seems to have been that the precedent of Roman law should lead to abolition. Nor should we overlook the more direct challenge Amo posed to the ideology of slavery just by being who he was. When the rector of Wittenberg held him up as an example of the erudition of which black Africans are capable, he was simply stating what must have been obvious to anyone brought face to face with this formidable scholar. Later on, his name would be mentioned by abolitionists like Abbe Henry Gregoire, who saw in Amo's works powerful evidence that a so-called more need not be less than any other human being. As the stories of Amo and Capitaine show, the topics of slavery and race were very much on the minds of European intellectuals of the 18th century. This is an aspect of early modern philosophy that has received increasing attention in recent years, as scholars have grappled with the frank racism found in renowned philosophers like Immanuel Kant. Next time, we'll be joined by the author of an important book on this topic, which places Anton Wilhelm Amo in the wider context of discussions about race in early modern European thought. We've already quoted him a couple of times in this episode, but barely scratched the surface of his findings on the subject of modern philosophy and race. So join us for a sober and accurate conversation with Justin Smith here on The History of African Philosophy. I'm gonna tell him I had hard